Uh, and it really wasn't him, it was God. And I didn't know that then, though. I, I mean, that would have been, I, I'm here because this guy asked me to come and he kept on asking me, and so that's why I'm here. But we're here to, uh, to hear from God's Word and to receive something of the Lord. So no matter if you've been a Christian all your life, uh, or matter if you, you don't even really, not really sure what that means to be a Christian, uh, God has something for you because He has you here this morning. And so we're going to pray that we would receive all that God has for us this morning. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your word. Your word is timeless. Um, your word transcends generations. It transcends societies. It, it transcends gender. It transcends every kind of uh, difference in, in your beautiful creation because your word is truth and truth is universal. Truth is outside of time. Truth is not something that we make up. It comes from you. And so, Lord, we receive your truth this morning. And we are ready to receive something from you. We, we didn't come here to check in with you, Lord. We came here to receive from you and to give to one another. There's a special dynamic when we're gathered together. Here we are, Lord, and we're opening your word, and you said your word would accomplish something. Let it do that this morning, Lord, in our hearts, not only here in this place, but all over this valley, uh, all over wherever believers are gathered together. Lord, uh, let your word speak. Have your way, Jesus, and we give you this time, and it's in your name, Jesus, we we say and we pray all of these things. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Give someone a high five and have a seat if you would, please. All right. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. Desolation on earth. That's the title this morning. Desolation on earth. Well, let me just tell you right now that if, if you came to receive a fluffy, you know, joyous, encouraging three points in a poem and, and sort of float out of here. That may happen, but there are things in particular in the book of Revelation that are heavy and they're serious. And, and this is like one of, one of those messages. I think that people love the idea of Jesus in a manger. You know, you've seen the picture maybe of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane praying against the rock and he has this beautiful angelic look on his face and the, and the light is shining down. Uh, I think we like the idea of the, the humble, beautiful, soft Jesus who loves everybody. It doesn't matter what you believe or what you, it really doesn't even matter what you think about him. God loves you and it's all about his love and that is true. Can you say amen to that? That's true, but there's another side to Jesus that I don't think pop culture really enjoys or wants to talk about. And that is his wrath. His anger. And the fact that one day he's going to come and deal with mankind. And he's going to deal with mankind in the only way that you can. He is trying to deal with mankind now through his love and through his mercy and through his grace. And we are recipients of that. You know, that's, we are born again. We're followers. We're believers. But you know, men are hard-headed. Can you say amen? You know, we're hard-headed, we're thick-headed, we don't always get it. And so there comes a time when God will deal with mankind in wrath and in anger. And the people will cry out, fall on us for the wrath of the Lamb has come. Someone once said that in the end times, the most expensive piece of real estate will be a hole in the ground to hide from God. 
Are you glad you came this morning? Just kind of wave your hand at me if you're glad that you came this morning. A couple in the back, I see your hand. God's moving. Anyone over here? Yes, brother, see your hand. God, God, you're glad you came this morning. The end is near. Look at someone and say, the end is near. The end is near. 1843, William Miller said that the end of the world would come, and he convinced thousands of people that it would happen. That day came, and he changed his date. 1914, Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Watchtower Society, a.k.a. Jehovah's Witnesses, said, 1914 would be the day of the end of the world, and specifically in October. And, you know, that's probably, probably a pretty good month, October. At least the weather's nice in October, right? It's better than coming in, like, July or something when it's all hot. Uh, uh, October came and went, and, and then the, he changed his date to November and then to December and then to 1925, and I don't know if we have that little graphic, Lawrence, of um, his, uh, the, next, the next guy in line uh, 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 says, well, it really wasn't, it, it really wasn't that uh, Charles uh, 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 J.D. Rutherford uh, changed the dates. Uh, 1975, there's, there's his prediction. Well, see, no, 1914 wasn't the end. It was the last days began, and it was the start of Jesus' invisible presence on earth I can tell you folks right now, when Jesus comes back, he will not be invisible, okay? The Bible says every eye will see him, all right? He's not going to be invisible. And then, oh, Jesus became king in heaven, so apparently the, what we're talked about in Revelation happened in 1914, according to them, and so the end is actually 1925. Whoop! 1925 came and gone, so no, it's actually within months of 1925. Anyway, I think they stopped doing dates, but I don't even keep up with it anymore. Um... Oh, back in uh, 1988, Edgar Wisenhut came out with this pamphlet, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming in 88, 1988. 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Was coming in 1988. Now, that, that, he changed it to 1989, September, and he said, well, how about 1993? <laughs> okay, don't ask me why. Oh, 1991, Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan said the Gulf War would be the war of Armageddon, which is the final war. No. How about 2011? Because, you know, people always want to project when the end will come. Apparently, there's a lot of money in predicting the end of the world because people will support you. People will give to your cause. Who can forget Harold Camping? May 21st, 2011. I mean, he put it down to a day, May 21st. Uh, I don't know if you have that billboard there. Uh, There you go, right there. Judgment Day, this is an actual billboard somewhere. Judgment Day is coming, May 21st, 2011. Cry, Molly, and Salar for His Mercy, SWRadio, FamilyRadio.com. Leave a donation, and May 21st, 2011. So, um... Later on, he postponed that to October 21st. And uh, so what he did was, with the, all the donations that he received, he just said, well, folks, apparently some folks wanted their money back. Which, I mean, if you're going to give money to an end-time dude and his date is not wrong, the least you should do is ask for your money back if, when it doesn't happen, right? Like, and there's probably a disclaimer, you know, no money back guarantee or something. You, you cannot get, I don't know. I do understand that later on in life he stopped doing that before he pa- went, passed away and hopefully went to be with the Lord. But he kind of recanted and said, that's wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And we already knew that anyway. Okay. 
But I'm not sure if the folks got their money back or not, which would be my thing. I would be like, you know, man, it's like two years. What, what, I want. Anyway, um, God calls a divine timeout between the sixth and the seventh seal, the judgment seals. In that timeout, two very big things happen. There's a conversion of 144,000 people that we talked about last week. And there's a conversion of a great multitude. And then there's a great worship service in heaven. And I hope that as we're reading through Revelation that you are, you are encouraged and blessed by the worship services in heaven and that that will cause you to worship even more. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2 says this, says, In wrath, remember mercy. And it turns out that God in His wrath does remember mercy. And so when you experience trials, look for opportunities for God's mercy to flow through you to others. When you experience trials, difficulty, hardship, look for opportunities for God's mercy to flow through you to others. All right. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, the prelude and the preparation. The prelude and the preparation. Here's what it says. And we're to the seventh seal. And that's going to lead us to seven trumpets. These are all judgments that God is pouring out on the earth. It says in verse 1, And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden in- a censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add it, it, add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and he filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Okay, so if you've never read that before, you're going, okay, what in the world is all of this talking about? And let me try to just unpack a little bit of this. First of all, there is lots of activity in heaven. There are a lot of people who believe, I mean, really going to heaven, sitting on a cloud, playing some sort of harp or some musical instrument sounds like the ultimate in boring. Now, I would just say this, that the God who created all, who spoke the stars into existence, who created all of this culture and all of this beauty, who made the most intricate and amazingly detailed animals, amoebas. You know, Darwin used to think that the single-celled amoeba was incredibly simple, and the bigger the microscopes got, the more we found out that the single-cell amoeba is incredibly complex. It's even beyond our own understanding, and the idea that this God who created all things, who speaks stars into existence, who knows them and calls them out by name, who knows the number of stars and knows the number of hairs on your head, somewhere in Las Vegas, a sparrow falls to the ground. God knows it because he knows everything. I think it's just illogical to think that this absolutely amazing creative God will create a place that we would dwell forever that would be boring. I mean, if there was an 11th commandment, it would be, thou shalt not be bored when you worship God. It should, you know, I think people think, well, because church is boring, well, then of course heaven must be the ultimate church, and that's got to be boring. And I think it's just, I, no, not at all, not at all. There's activity in heaven. 
I mean, there's worship going on. We've already seen the sound of the trumpet in chapter four, uh, 4, when the voice of the Lord was like that of a trumpet. 24 elders, flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. The choirs and the, the four living creatures, the song of the 24 elders, the song of the angels, the cry of the martyrs from underneath the altar, the song of the great multitude. I mean, heaven is active. There's activity. There's noise. There's stuff happening. And, and Jesus is at the center of it all. And, that, and that's not going to be boring. That's going to be like larger than life. Your senses will not be dulled by the society or dulled by, you know, I don't know, conscience or dulled by just your inability to be creative. You know, how many of you are not creative people? And when it comes to creativity, you go, that's just not me. When you get to heaven, it's going to be the fullness of that. I mean, not that you'll be creating things, but, but I mean, all of our senses will be exactly the way they were designed to be in dimensions we can't even imagine. And yet, in, ch- in chapter 8, there's a transition, and there's silence. How many of you like silence? How many of you get a little nervous when that silence comes at a time you're not expecting it? There are places we expect silence. There are places we go to for silence. But sometimes it can be awkward. How many of you are wondering how long I'm going to do this? <laughs> Henry Nouwen said, In this chatty society, silence has become a fearful thing. For most, silence creates itchiness, nervousness. Many experience silence not as full and rich, but as empty and hollow. For them, silence is like a gaping abyss, which can swallow them up. Quiet. Silence. I think in this high-tech, high-charge society, it's a good thing, no matter what your temperament is, I think it's a good thing from time to time to get alone and have some silence. No music, no phones, no Facebook, no nothing, just silence. Because our, our lives are filled with noise. And sometimes... It's a little bit difficult to hear God because of all the noise. And sometimes we keep it noisy so we don't have to hear God. Now, God can speak any way he wants to. He can speak silently or he can speak loudly. But sometimes the noise keeps the focus off of what we really need to focus on. There's a silence here in heaven for 30 minutes. It is the calm before the storm. Judgment to a whole nother degree is about to be unleashed on the earth. Zephaniah chapter 1 tells us, Be silent in the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Zechariah chapter 2 says, Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. In this seventh seal, as it's opened in verse 1, God is 
being roused from his dwelling. And the scroll is unraveled as the seventh seal is broken. And uh, the implication seems to be that everyone can see it. And so there's this, they, they see what's being unfolded. They see what's next. The, the scroll is opened up and they see what happens next. And there's this awe and there's this silence because they know what's going to happen in the next few chapters. And the only response is absolute quiet. There's no worship. There's no music. There's no song. It's just, it's unveiled, and it's so awful, it's quiet in heaven for 30 minutes. Seven angels, seven trumpets. Significant. When the people of God were to be called together, the trumpet was blown. The trumpet was also blown to announce war. And then oftentimes when God was doing something special with his people, a trumpet would be blown. Mount Sinai, as the law was given, the trumpet was blown. Whenever a new king would be anointed or appointed as king, the trumpet would be blown. The children of Israel walked around Jericho, right? Six times, and on the seventh time, what did they do? They blew the trumpet, and the walls fell. Okay? Um, God's king has been announced and enthroned in heaven, Jesus and he is ready to judge his enemies. Some have even suggested that this silence, this half hour of silence before the trumpet sounds is God's final half hour of grace. I mean, I mean, what if, uh, you know, our, our God is saying, okay, no, wait, wait, before we leave these next series of judgments, 30 minutes. Let's give people one more chance to repent and to turn to me. You know, God is never in a hurry to judge. We are. Lord, judge those people. Lord, you know, my boss is out of line. Get them, God. You know, I mean, I mean, if we had like the judge stick, we would probably judge people harsher <laughs> and sooner than maybe even God would. Well, like... He's not in a hurry. Uh, one of God's main attributes is that he is long-suffering. He's, he's patient. Aren't you glad that God is patient? I, I don't know about you, but I am. The Bible says the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There's a famous story about one of America's um, most infamous atheists named Roger Ingersoll, who loved for shock value to blaspheme God in public meetings. And it was at one particular meeting that he spoke at, and he uttered this blasphemy after blasphemy to the crowd. He was an amazing speaker, uh, and he said this, if, there's, if, there, if there's no God, and if there is, let him strike me dead, and I'll give him five minutes to do so. And he took out his watch, and he said it. And he said, all right, God, you've got five minutes to strike me dead. Five minutes later, he goes, there is no God. And I am not dead. After the meeting, there was a young college student, thought that was pretty cool, and said to Dr. Ingersoll, that, you know, so someone, you know, they really proved something tonight, don't you think? And there's one Christian lady who overheard this, and she said, yeah, he sure did. He proved that even the most defiant sinner cannot exhaust the patience of God in five minutes. God is waiting. 
There's a time that's appointed, but he's waiting. God's waiting for you. If you have not come to a place of surrendering your life to Jesus, if you have not given him the driver's steering wheel of your heart, if you've not come into his kingdom, if you've not confessed and agreed with him that you're a sinner, if you've not done that, he's waiting. He's waiting for you. And God is patient. He will wait. But there comes a point where the waiting will come to an end. That point has come. And so it speaks about the prayers of the saints. The prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which is before the throne. Here's the imagery. Back in the tabernacle, which is sort of a model of what's happening on in heaven, there were two altars. There was one on the outer court, the brass altar where sacrifices were burned. There was another that was the golden altar that was much smaller in the holy place in front of the veil of the holy of holies. The priests would take a coal from the altar of sacrifice, put it in a little incense burner or a censer, and he would, um, uh, uh, with a little bowl attached to it on a rope and a chain, he would take that to, from the outer court into the holy place where there was the altar of incense. He put the coal on the altar, he'd sprinkle incense on it, and the incense would rise up from the holy place as a, as a, a, a memorial to God, as, and it represented the prayers of the saints. But see, God was, God was interested in his people visualizing something. When they prayed, there would be incense burning, and whenever they were in Jerusalem or wherever the tabernacle was, they could smell that incense, and they knew the prayers were being offered up. See? Uh, that, that's the imagery there. Um, uh, King David said, Let my prayer come before you as an offering and sweetness of incense. Uh, and here it says it's mixed with the prayers of the saints. And it says um, uh, the prayers of all the saints. And though these prayers might be the prayers of those uh, martyred during the tribulation who were under the altar, it might also symbolize the prayers of all of God's people. Um, all of God's people sort of symbolized in, in this. Um, God is answering the prayers of his children. Do you ever feel like God isn't hearing you or didn't answer your prayer? I, I think maybe we all have. Listen, there's no prayer uttered by a child of God that is not remembered, kept track of, and answered somehow. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's not true. Let me say it again. There's no prayer uttered by a child of God that's not remembered, kept track of, and answered somehow. If you're walking in fellowship with God, and if you're walking in obedience to Him, He answers all your prayers. And I know, I know, wait a second, man. There's a bunch of things that I've prayed for, and it hasn't happened. That's right. That's because He said no. And no is an answer. <laughs> and when God says no, it's always couched in His grace and His mercy. There are three basic answers that you get in prayer. Some we like, some not so much. No. I love you too much. You can't have it now. Or there are other reasons that we may never know 
why God says no. Any parents in the house? You, you, you cannot say yes to everything that your children want. I understand that children don't get that. But one day, by God's grace, they will be parents. And they will understand when they have to say no. Well, all of my friends get to play on the freeway. Well, Johnny, just because all of your friends play on the freeway doesn't mean I'm going to let you play on the freeway because I love you too much for that. Well, you're not fair. No, I love you. Sometimes God answers yes. Amen? The Bible says we have not because we ask not. We love yes. Lord, I really need yes. Hallelujah. Testimony. I got to share my testimony at church of how God answered this prayer. You know what? We ought to have these kinds of testimonies. Pastor, you got to let me share my testimony. I've been asking for a spouse and God said no. I just want to share it with everybody. (laughs) All the single people say, I don't receive that. No, 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 no. That word's for you, brother, not me. I don't receive that. And you know what? When God says yes, it's usually exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond what we could ask or think. And yet when God says no, it's exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all we could ask or think. And there's, there's, a, there's another general way that God answers prayer, and that's the dreaded wait. Not now. You've got to wait. And we're like, thank you, God. I'm so excited. We ought to have testimony time. You know, I've been praying for this and praying, and God has said, wait, I'm so excited. <laughs> Why do you come back when you get it, okay? That'll be a little bit more, a little bit more oomph to that testimony, you know? You know? <laughs> oh, I remember when the Lord told me this beautiful lady right here is going to be my wife. The Lord said, she, I mean, <clears throat> almost audibly not, she will be your wife. I was like, woo, hallelujah. All right, now, wait, what? Oh, no, wait a second, man. I know I didn't hear that right. God said, yes, what else is there to talk about? God said, wait. I'm like, not now. Okay, tomorrow? <laughs> you know, no. Ah. Here God's answering the prayers of the people. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says this. It says, And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, and sounds and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest put the incense on the coals on the censer, And with the blood of the sacrifice, he went into the Holy of Holies. Here, instead of walking into the the throne, the angel puts the incense on the altar. Yes, it it represents the, uh, or he presents these prayers to God. The censer then is hurled to the earth in judgment. And there's lightnings and thunderings and a great earthquake. In other words, if the, if the incense is symbolic of the prayers of the people of God, here's the point here, the final judgment on earth is in direct response to the prayers of God's people. <clears throat> I mean, God's people have been praying for, for centuries. Lord, let your kingdom come. He is answering that now. 
The tribulation saints have prayed for God to deliver them. Their prayers are about to be answered. The prayers of God's people are involved in the judgments that He sends. Listen, the purpose of prayer, someone has said, is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. The purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. Do you think prayer is, it pow- is powerful? Don't answer. Do you think prayer is powerful? Of course it is. And at the core of who we are as believers, we all believe that. So why don't we pray that way? Sometimes we just don't. Why don't we, if we believe prayer was really that powerful, then why don't we pray more than we do? Let a tragedy happen to our nation. Boy, after 9-11, churches were packed with people. Why do we have such short memories? Because, you know, the economy, you know, the bottom drops out of the economy. People are coming to church. They're looking for answers. At the first sign that the Dow's on the upswing, those people aren't back again. I don't know why that is. Prayer is powerful. Maybe we just need to pray with a heavenly perspective as these prayers are, 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 are sending from our living room or our bedroom or with the faintest cry of our heart up to heaven as incense into the very throne of God. Maybe, maybe we just need to have that perspective. Reese Howells in his book, Intercessor, a great read, Reese Howell's intercessor, says, No great event in history, even though prophesied beforehand in the Scriptures, comes to pass unless God finds His human channels of faith and obedience. Prophecies must be believed, in t- believed into manifestation as well as foretold. Now, now, he's not saying God can't do anything, can't fulfill Scripture, unless there's a human element that's involved. But he says that's what God does. And I believe that. And I believe that our prayers can literally usher in that Jesus said to pray that. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Now we know the gravity of that. Because for God's kingdom to come, He's going to have to deal with evil. And that's what He's about to do. And that hasn't happened yet. In one sense, it has. 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus dealt a death blow to evil to Satan, to, to all of that, but, 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 but that was the first part. The next part happens here. <clears throat> Desolation on earth, verse 7. It says, And the first trumpet sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees uh, were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Okay, Desolation number one, let's try to wrap our heads around it. Plant life was the first to be created, uh, and it's the first to be destroyed. We've seen this before, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and hail fell. The Egyptian hailstorms, there was thunder and lightning and hail. Here, God says, a third of the earth will be destroyed. Okay, put your mind around that. And uh, I had my research assistant look this up last night, Dawn, my wife, and she said, <laughs> my research assistant, hey, honey, check this out. See what you come up with. All of Asia and half of Europe is a third of the world. 
or all of Africa, Europe, and Australia is a third of the world. That, that, that's a big chunk. The word for trees here is a word that's often used for fruit trees. So that affects not only just the fact that all this stuff is torched, but the ability to eat. There's devastation of pasture lands that would affect livestock. There's a devastation of farming lands that would affect grains, vegetables, and fruit. Now, let me just shift gears real quickly. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, says this. You can turn there. I have it on the screen as well. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19. But what, because what may be known from God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, Paul the Apostle saying, there's no excuse. Verse 20, for since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, can you see invisible attributes? No, they're invisible. But Paul says, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, uh, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were uh, thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals, creeping things. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up to the uncleanliness in their lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Now, don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with caring for the environment. I recycle. I'm good with all of that. There's nothing wrong with respecting our planet. But when one begins to think that earth is God and God is the earth, when I begin to believe in the power of Mother Nature to save us all, I step into what Paul is talking about where I no longer worship the God who created all things, but I'm so enthralled with His creation that I worship the creation instead. That's called pantheism. The universe or nature, everything that's in it is God. And they do not believe in a personal, distinct God like we do. Buddhism has that general tenet in their belief. And the Lord says, there's going to come a time when this wonderful planet that I've created will be torched and destroyed. And that time has come in the book of Revelation. Verse 9 and 10 says this. Um, verse 8 and 9, I'm sorry. And the second angel sounded in something like a great tribulation burning with fire. Uh, uh, something like a great mountain, I'm sorry, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Desolation in the seas. Um, something like a great mountain. Look at the size of that ship. Boy, cargo ships are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Something like a great mountain. 
God's very precise in his ability to control the parameters of his judgment. Do you notice he's saying this is what will happen and this is what it will be limited to? He's very specific. Remember when the plagues hit the Egyptians, there came a point where he drew a distinction between the people of God and the Egyptians and said, here's where the destruction will happen. Here is where it will not happen. There's hail over here. If you're in the Hebrew camp, there's no hail. God has the ability to do that. It seems that some asteroid piece of a star or something enters the atmosphere. Um, it might be continent size, and it's broken up, and it, it goes through the atmosphere. It's combined with maybe combustionable gases. We don't know. As it falls on the earth, it, it ignites into a big flaming ball, and you can imagine that if there's any technology left on the earth that everyone knows it's coming but doesn't know where it's going to hit. Verse 10 and 11, the follow-up, which is very similar, says, And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became worm, Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they became bitter. Um, an ignited star that is falling penetrates the atmosphere, disintegrates, spreads over the whole, whole earth, maybe like chemical warfare. And this one torches the fresh springs and the wells. The sea, a third of the sea has been destroyed. Now it's the, it's the fresh water. Um, the Greek word here is asteros, and we get our word asteroid from that. And this one is given a name. It's called wormwood. Um, which we get our English word absinthe, which is a liqueur, and it's also a nightclub in Las Vegas, I believe. You can pay $100 and go to the absinthe club, which word means undrinkable, which the first thing I thought of was, does the, I want to call the club and say, do you serve alcohol? <laughs> you don't want to go to a place called absinthe, which means undrinkable, and buy a drink. I don't know, whatever. Get water. Don't go. Better yet. Um, <clears throat> Proverbs 5.4, Solomon said, Im uh, Immorality might seem pleasant, but in the end it is as bitter as wormwood. Okay? Now apparently, if people drink of this, they die. So there's further destruction. Now what about the fish? Can't survive. I, I, this is hard to grasp, guys. This is not fluffy. But you know what it is? It's God getting down to business and saying that time is up. I'm not. This is not a season of grace anymore. It's a season of my wrath. Now there's desolation from the skies. Verse 12 says this. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten. Did you get that? A third of the sun, and the stars, and the moon were smitten, so that a third of them might be darkened, and the day might not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. One-third less energy on the earth, similar to the ninth plague of darkness on Egypt. Got a picture here of 
of a cloud. Parade Magazine did an article years ago called Too Many Weapons. And they said, what would happen if a nuclear war were unleashed upon the earth? This is what they said. Nuclear winter could be the delayed result, chiefly from clouds of fine sooty particles injected into our atmosphere, especially from the burning of cities and petroleum facilities. It would entail widespread cold and dark. Poisonous gases would be released from burnings of cities and chemical plants, radioactivity uh, slowly falling out of the atmosphere, and later on an increase in the dangerous ultraviolet light at the surface uh, of the Earth, penetrating the war-breached protective ozone layer. The high-altitude soot would prevent warming sunlight from reaching the ground. It would diminish the greenhouse effect, which is what keeps the temperature on the Earth above freezing in the first place. Smoke plumes and firestorms rising above hundreds or thousands of targets throughout the, the northern mid-latitudes spread first in longitude, then in latitude, would cause the temperature to plummet. Eventually, over much of the Earth, the temperature drop of only a few degrees during the growing season that is enough to cause massive crop failures with no food, people starve. If you want to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 21, verse 25, I'll read it to you. Luke 21, 25 says this. Jesus speaking says, And there will be strange signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. And here on earth the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and the strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And there's not a lot of indication that even some of these folks repent and turn to Jesus after all this. <clears throat> Verse 13, and we close out this morning, it says, And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Uh, there's an emphasis on this woe. It's mentioned three times. That means this is particularly bad. And whatever this eagle and whatever this being is that's flying, it's saying basically, okay, you haven't seen anything yet cries out, whoa, you haven't seen anything yet. All right, in wrath, <clears throat> remember mercy. In San Jose, there's a house called the Winchester Mystery House. There's stairways that go nowhere, and there's doors that lead to nothing. The story is that of a woman named Sarah Winchester, who was married to the Winchester rifle dude, right? She inherited all of his money when he died in 1918. She moved to San Jose and she was a spiritist. She was involved in spiritism and mediums and the occult. Uh, she had a seance and at one particular seance, it was conveyed to her that she would build a house as long as she continued to build the house, she would never die. So fearing death, she went to work. She spent five million dollars building a house that would continue to be built at a time when the wage for a worker was 50 cents an hour. 
She built a huge house, 150 rooms, 13 bathrooms, 2,000 doors, 10,000 windows. And when she died, you got that right? She left enough material to go on building for another 80 years. What a picture of mankind, huh? My environment, my house, my kingdom, my heaven. No matter how you build and put your stock in the here and the now, you know, the Winchester mystery is not really a mystery, is it? She died. And with it, everything was left behind. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. but My words will never. Um, so why is all this written? I mean, come on. Why? Why? I mean, like, Lord, we want to know about your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your love. Okay, why is all of this written, really? For some, it's intriguing. For others, it's like, where do you want to go eat after we're done? For some, it makes us stop and think about our kingdom that we're building here on earth. Why was this written? I think it's a warning for people on earth to wake up and to give their lives to Christ, who is the center of this book and who is the only hope that we really have. Also, I think it's a comfort for the people of God to know that God is in control of all things. And I think it's a challenge for us to say, you know what? There's a time that's been appointed and we get lulled to sleep, building our kingdom, busy with day, busy with life. Nothing wrong with those things, but we get lulled to sleep by it and we lose a heavenly perspective that one day, Everything we are so tirelessly working for will all be torched. <laughs> and then when we go to be with him, we're not taking anything with us either. Therefore, Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where it won't be moth-eaten. It won't rust. It won't break down. And thieves aren't going to steal it perspective, right? Maybe that's why this is here. Maybe that's why it's here. Well, I want to pray with you guys. Um, I know it's a heavy message. I know it is. I know it is. But it's in the Word of God. We can never, ever talk about it. And you know what? Some would be just fine with that, but it's there. And so let's not pretend, but let's let the Word stir us and challenge us, especially and with all the evil that we see in the world. Let me pray with you. Let me have the ushers come forward, and I want to just pray first and say, you know what? Um, there was a time in my life when I uh, came to church and I heard the gospel message for the first time, and the message was that Jesus loved me. I couldn't tell you what the specific text was, what the message was, but I recognized that, you know what? 
life was more than just about me. And that was because of God's grace and mercy revealing that to me. I didn't figure it out on my own. And it, it brought me to a decision point. And that is that if all of this is true, what am I going to do about Jesus? What will I do? Now, I can ignore it. I could pretend. I could go on and live my life just the way that I'm living it. Or I could say, you know what? This is going to cause me to, to, to change. And it's going to cause me to embrace Christ. And maybe that's you this morning. I want to, it would be wrong to talk about all that we've talked about and not give you that opportunity. And you might not know exactly how to do it, so I want to pray with you. All right, if you're a believer in Jesus, I need you praying right now. Praying that anybody in this room that does not have a personal relationship with Jesus would come to faith in Him, just like you did one day, because there was somebody that was praying for you. For those of you who might even be considering this, let me just tell you what this means. This means that you will recognize that you're a sinner. You've missed the mark. You, you, you've, you know, God's standard and His requirement is perfection. You're not good enough. Neither am I. No one is. So we can all agree that no one's perfect. That's the easy part. But what do you do with that? Because if God requires perfection, how can I get to be with Him if I'm not perfect? That's why Jesus came. And when you recognize that and you say, okay, Jesus... I'm not perfect, you are, you lived on this earth, then you died for my sins, but then you rose from the dead. So by having a relationship with you, I can be with God forever in eternity. But my sins are separating me from you, but if I will ask you to forgive me. This is not like you guilty, you go before the judge downtown, and you go, judge, forgive me. And he goes, I can't forgive you. You're guilty. If I forgave you, man, the press would be in here all night long. I would lose my... I it, is, it is unethical for me to forgive you. I, it's not judicious and judicial for me to forgive you. It's not like that. This is going to the holy God in the supreme court, the highest of the highest, and saying, God, I'm guilty. And God says, I know you are. I've just been waiting for you to admit that. Now, what are you going to do with that? Forgive me, Lord. You are forgiven. What? <laughs> what was that? Come again? Okay, everything you've ever done in word or thought or deed is wiped clean because of what Jesus did. Do you walk away free? Yes and no. You're free from all the bondage, all the sin, everything you've done. But now you serve Jesus. Now you give your life to him. Now he becomes the center. And that will cost you everything. <laughs> and that's all right. So I want to pray that. If anybody here needs that, that you would receive Jesus this morning. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. It is all about you. It's all about you. Lord, we know that no um, emotion can't bring us to heaven. Desire can't bring us to you. Just doing the right thing and believing that we're a good person cannot bring us to you. It takes faith in Jesus, what he has done to free us from our sin. And if that's you this morning and that, that, that resonates in your spirit and you feel like, you know what, I feel that, I do, it's in my heart. I can't articulate it all the way, but there's a churning deep, that's the spirit of God that is drawing you and wooing you by the love of Christ to come to God. Maybe you've never done that before. And this morning you just say, I agree with you, Pastor. That's me. 
I, I, I want to do that. I, 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 that's me. I agree. I agree. If that's you, raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Anyone at all. This is maybe the first time you've heard the message and you're responding saying, I want that forgiveness. I do. I want God, forgive me my sins. And I turn from me to you. And I receive your precious gift of life eternal. Anybody at all? I want to give you that opportunity. Just raise your hand. I'll pray with you. Anybody? Anybody? Amen, brother. God knows. God sees your heart. Yep, 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 yep. Anyone else? Say, yes, God. Yes, that's me. That is me. That is me. I'm not saying yes to religion. I'm not saying yes to philosophy. I'm not even saying yes to the preacher. I'm saying yes to you, Jesus. Big difference. Big difference. Anybody else? Anybody else? All right. All right. Father God, we give you all the praise and all the glory for this day. Lord, it is the the very breath that we breathe is in your hand. Lord, we pray that you would continue the work of grace that you've begun in this place, that you would keep on, Lord, and you say that you will, so our hope is in you. Lord, as we give this morning of our tithes and our offering, Lord, that you would take it and multiply it for the furtherance of your kingdom and that, Lord, your kingdom would come. Lord, the the slightest that we give or the largest that we give, may it all translate to your kingdom coming here. Yes, yes, Lord, we want to bring it. We want to bring it. We want to reach. Lord, you're patient because you're waiting. You're waiting for more people. And if we can give to the work of the ministry and if we would take this money and use it for your glory, O God, and use it to reach others, to train up these people in this place to reach others, we've accomplished our task. So, Lord, we need your help to do that. And we give now by faith that you would multiply it for the furtherance of your kingdom. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you go ahead and pass the back?